eating disorders can affect anyone across the gender, weight, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status um, spectrum. It, it can really affect everybody. Hi, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to episode 22 of the Learn With Lyle's podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Shauna solomon Krakis, a doctoral student in clinical psychology at the University of Toronto, who studies eating disorders and body image. Shauna and I talked about some really big topics that have impacted so many of us, whether or not we realize it. We talked about society's shift from thinspiration to fitspiration and how that change isn't necessarily a better approach diet culture and how dangerous it is, how key body representation is in the media and how health looks so different for everyone. And then we talked about some suggestions if you or someone you know is dealing with an eating disorder. We also talked a little bit about my experience with binge eating and perfection and how those things were so connected. If you've ever struggled with food or dieting or body image, or if you know someone who struggled with these things, I think you'll find this conversation really insightful and hopefully helpful. Even if you don't think that you've struggled with these topics, I think this is a good conversation to listen to because diet culture really is so ingrained in our society that we don't even notice how it impacts us. In listening back to this conversation, I've been realizing some of the biases that I have and have started thinking about some of the ways that I can make improvements because I am definitely still learning too. So yeah, I hope that you enjoy this conversation and if you would like to learn more, Shauna suggested checking out NEDIC, which is the National Eating Disorder Information Center, which I will link to on social media. Thank you so much for, for being on my podcast. Um, for our listeners, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. So my name is Shauna Solomon Krakis. I'm a PhD student at the University of Toronto in the clinical psychology department. Yes. And yeah, so I wanted to um, have you on my podcast because, you know, I'm a woman in my 20s and mm-hmm. I've feel like I've dealt with body image issues as most uh, women have. Um, And I did have a bit of a binge eating problem for a little bit there. So I feel like I've been quite impacted by the things that you're studying. And I know a lot of people have as well. So I figured it would be great to talk to somebody in this field. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, So what made you decide to pursue this area of studies? It's a great question, and it's something that I've been thinking more and more about. Um, The first experience that I can reflect on is actually being in high school. And, you know, I myself am a woman as well and was surrounded by other women. And I was learning a lot about psychology in one of my social sciences classes and, you know, learning about depression and anxiety, among other um, really prevalent mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. One thing, though, that I wasn't learning about was eating disorders and body image. It was rarely mentioned in the classroom, and yet it was talked about a lot by my peers. And hearing my peers experience body image concerns and eating disturbances and some of the things you've opened up about as well, and yet it wasn't being discussed in my larger community. And I was really um, frustrated and um, fueled to t- learn more about that. And so that's the first... <laughs> Um, memory that I have of really being interested in the area and then pursuing that for the rest of my academic career. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's very true. I feel like the same for when I was in high school, like eating disorders and body image were definitely things that we would talk about like within our friend groups, but not in class. So yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, how prevalent are eating disorders in our society? So it's a great question. Um, in fact, the, the, the prevalence rates when we look at percentages are quite low when we think about other mental health challenges. Um, but I don't, I don't want that to reflect, um, you know, the experiences of disordered eating. And we actually know that eating disorders manifest in so many different ways. And so um, the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, um, for Mental Disorders has a way of categorizing and diagnosing different eating disorders. Um, if someone's experience, though, doesn't quite match the criteria within that manual, then often it's um, seen as, you know, an other specified feeding or eating disorder, um, which is actually the most common type of eating disorder that we see. And that's just because there are so many different presentations of eating disorders that are not captured by diagnoses of, say, anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. Mm-hmm. And so if we look at the prevalence of anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, they are quite low. I think, though, if we look at um, you know, other manifestations of eating disorders, disordered eating and body image concerns. I mean, I don't have an exact number, but I could predict that they're, they're much higher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like I, I can't really say that I know many people who um, had anorexia or bulimia, but I feel like most people who I know have kind of just like dwelled about eating and, and worried about their body image. So that makes sense for sure. So are there things that make someone more likely to experience an eating disorder? Like what are the, the risk factors, I guess you would say? Yeah, I'm actually so thankful that you use the term risk factors because I think often there's such an important distinct, um, distinction between language of risk factors and causes. We don't know what causes an eating disorder right now. All we know is you know, risk factors that increase someone's likelihood of developing an eating disorder but certainly doesn't guarantee someone developing an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So thank you for um, distinguishing that. In, in terms of risk factors, I mean, they're quite diverse. So what we know is there's some environmental risk factors, which can include the culture that somebody's brought up in. And specifically, research has looked at cultures that value thinness and specific body ideals. There's also um, other environmental risk factors like experiencing a stressful event or multiple stressful events that can um, precipitate an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of biological research. I'm not as familiar with it. Uh, I'm certainly aware that there are studies supporting genetic underpinnings of eating disorders as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that I'm interested in my research is looking at individual differences like uh, higher levels of perfectionism that can be a risk factor. And another risk factor that we know of um, is a history of dieting that can be a major risk factor for developing an eating disorder. But again, I'll emphasize that having any one of these risk factors does not mean you will develop an eating disorder. And often it's not just one risk factor, it's multiple. Um, and it's not even the list that I you know, have talked about is not even um, a fraction of, I'm sure, other risk factors out there. So something to keep in mind as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are, are a lot of things at play. Yeah, I was looking that you, um, you're studying the 
the personality traits to see um, who's more likely to experience eating disorders? Yeah, um, I'm specifically interested in perfectionism as a personality trait. Mm -hmm. Um, So one thing that a lot of research has gone into figuring out what perfectionism is and realizing that it's actually not a single trait or unidimensional. In fact, there's different dimensions and different types of perfectionism. And so I'm really interested in exploring, you know, what types of perfectionism are most strongly related to body image concerns and disordered eating and eating disorders. Um, So, you know, that we can be a bit more refined in the way that we approach eating disorder treatment as well. Mm -hmm. Hmm, That's very interesting. Yeah, I feel like when like when you say perfectionism, like that makes me think so much of like when I had a bit of a a binge eating problem, like I feel like each day I would be like, okay, like I'm going to eat perfectly today. And then like, like eight o'clock would hit and then I would just crack and then eat everything. So definitely having like that, like perfectionist mindset really, um, really kind of led to, to some problems for me. And, you know, one of the things um, I I think that's a really common experience is, you know, people are following um, a restrictive way of eating and that can precipitate um, binge eating. So that is also a risk factor as well um, and a common one that I hear about a lot. And, you know, just coming back to the perfectionism piece, one particular dimension of perfectionism that I'm very interested in is what we call self-critical perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And that's been defined by Dr. David Dunkley at McGill University, who does a lot of research in that area. And essentially, you know, self-critical perfectionism involves constant and really harsh self-criticism if goals aren't met or if standards aren't met. And there's also um, a, a chronic concern about how others are perceiving them and how others might criticize or disapprove of them. And so that's actually the facet of perfectionism that I'm really interested in studying to see, is it this self-critical perfectionism piece that's related to eating disorders, perhaps more so than um, another facet that we call personal standards perfectionism, which again is Dr. Dunkley's work, um, which involves you know setting and striving for high goals without being accompanied by such harsh self-criticism. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds like you're describing like my whole university life right there. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's an important um, facet to, to look at because again, I think like I talked about in my high school experience and you also um, talked about as well is it's something we saw a lot among peers and it wasn't talked about outside of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, Yeah, and so important that we start talking about it. Absolutely. And that's why I'm, you know, so glad being on this podcast and talking to you because I think there's a lot of information out there that, you know, propels misconceptions about eating disorders. And so it's really important to have conversations to try to dispel some of those myths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So you talked a bit about uh, your research on personalities. Um, Is there any other kind of research that you're focusing on right now? Yes. Um, So in addition to the personality work, I'm also really interested in knowing what emotional experiences are associated with um, restricted eating specifically. And so one line of research that um, Dr. Catherine Sabiston, who's actually one of my supervisors at the University of Toronto, looks at is um, 
these body related emotions. And so one piece that I'm looking at in my dissertation is if we're experiencing body related shame, guilt, embarrassment, is that more strongly associated with experiencing restrictive eating or even thinking about restrictive eating, like counting calories, for example, versus when someone might experience more general emotions, like general shame, as an example. So that is one area that I'm interested in. Again, you know, because we know that there are so many different risk factors, you know, what are some things that we can refine and target a little bit more in treatment so that we can improve the outcomes? Mm-hmm. Hmm, very interesting. Um, I Thank feel you. like most of the research tends to look more at women versus men. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, we know that um, prevalence rates that women are more affected by um, certain types of eating disorders um, than uh, uh, men. However, I want to make very clear that that does not mean that men don't experience eating disorders. And in fact, I think that can be one of the major misconceptions. So I'm glad that was brought up because I want to certainly dispel that mm-hmm. and emphasize that eating disorders can affect anyone across the gender, weight, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status um, spectrum. It, it can really affect everybody or anybody. Mm-hmm. True. I feel like, especially nowadays, now that we all have our phones on us 24-7 and we're on Instagram all the time, I feel like the media is just a really big influencer of how we feel about our bodies um both men and women and i feel like so often we're exposed to fake bodies that have like flat stomachs and and big butts and we're all just feeling like oh we need to to be like this even though it's all filtered and unnatural um and yeah i don't know i just feel like the at least for my experience like the media has really played a huge role in in my own body image. Absolutely. I think it's it's a huge contributor. And you know, one thing that I've researched more and have been more fascinated by is social media in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was growing up, a lot of these images of course were on TV and magazines and movies among other media platforms. Um, but we didn't have social media. And now those images are literally at everyone's fingertips every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Social media can be both an amazing resource and a dangerous um, tool, or not tool, but dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some influencers, you know, I think of Instagram in particular, who are amazing at dispelling the misconceptions of eating disorders and really fighting diet culture. And then there are other um, images and pages that are perpetuating narrow and very unrealistic body ideals. Um, Interestingly, I think social media has been a huge contributor to um, this transition from thinspiration to fitspiration. And I'll talk a little bit more about that um, because I think Dr. Marika Tigman, who um, works out of Flinders University in Australia, looks at this and I think her work is fascinating. Um, You know, essentially that perhaps more when I was growing up and seeing those magazines and maybe the beginning of social media, there was really this thin inspiration or media content that idealized thinness. Uh-huh. And now 
we're seeing that transition a little bit more to fitspiration. So, you know, media content that not only idealizes thinness, it also promotes being toned on top of that and having this very narrow um, standard of, of, of beauty, essentially um, being both now within this fit world and thin world. And it's this really interesting um, transition that I think social media has played a huge part in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely see that. Um, do you think that this kind of transition into being fit versus super skinny is better or how is that impacting our body image? That's a good question. Um, I, I'd be very hesitant to say that it's better. In fact, I might say that it still holds, you know, this idea that there's this very narrow, um, unrealistic image of ideal uh, beauty or appearance. And I think that can be dangerous. Um, so it's, it's hard. I, I would be hesitant to say that it's better um, because I think that it can still have some pretty negative repercussions um, on people who are seeing those images. And, and Dr. Tigman explores how that can have some really negative effects on body image as well as eating. So I think um, one way is not necessarily more dangerous than the other. I think both inspiration and fitspiration can have some really um, negative repercussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I wonder what your thoughts are too on, um, there are some bigger girls who are coming onto the scene, people like Lizzo, um, who are bigger and who are super proud of their bodies. But then there are some people who are coming out and criticizing them saying it's not healthy to be overweight and we shouldn't encourage kids to think that that's okay. Um, so I wonder what your, your thoughts are on that topic. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's fantastic that we're starting to see greater representation. You know, we're not quite there, but we're getting we're getting better at seeing greater representation of all bodies, um, including Lizzo. I think that's important um, because we're seeing, you know, with many of these images, very narrow and unrealistic images of bodies that we're not seeing in our day-to-day lives. So I think the greater representation is fantastic. And I think for people who perhaps have um, criticisms or are apprehensive about those images, I can also see where they're coming from as well, because we are so immersed in diet culture. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to pull from Christy Harrison, who is an amazing dietitian and, and has a podcast called Food Psych that really dives into diet culture a little bit more. Um, but essentially, her definition looks at diet culture as worshiping thinness and equating thinness with health. Mm-hmm. What that means is anybody who doesn't meet that very skewed image of health will be oppressed by our society. And, you know, diet culture is going to promote certain ways of eating and demonize other ways of eating. And it's going to put morality into eating. So someone might feel bad for eating a bad food, whereas someone might feel good for eating a food that's labeled as good. And that very black and white thinking can be really, really harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think both the morality placed on food and diet culture can have some really negative outcomes. And so if people are apprehensive or, um, you know, maybe criticizing those images, I would encourage them to look 
at Diet Culture and visit it, um, visit Christy Harrison's page, as well as um, Dr. Linda Bacon's Health at Every Size um, work, which is a new model of health that does not equate um, health with thinness or even weight with health as diet culture um, has. So I think that would be just an important piece of education for people who might um, feel uncomfortable with those images. Um, And I can also understand where they're coming from, given that we've been so inundated with diet culture. So, Yeah, for sure. I'll definitely have to check those out. Yeah, absolutely. They're really, um, Chrissy Harrison's, um, also wrote a book called Anti-Diet and her podcast, Food Psych, both amazing resources, as well as, uh, Dr. Linda Bacon's Health at Every Size is an amazing resource as well. Mm-hmm. Health at Every Size. That's very interesting. Yeah. I feel like, like we always just think that skinny and toned and muscular is healthy, but we don't realize that it looks different for everybody. Absolutely. And I think we also can't assume someone's health just based on how they look. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, another major misconception that we need to um, start dispelling as well. And I think actually Lizzo, I know you mentioned her, has been doing a really good job on her page, you know, targeting that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I follow her on TikTok and she always posts like the meals that she's eating and um, she also posts like her exercising and it's like she has a healthy lifestyle like she's maybe a bigger girl but she like she has a healthy lifestyle so. Yeah, and I think another thing to mention is that health is going to look different for everybody. Mm -hmm. So one person's healthy lifestyle is not going to be the next person's healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think diet culture right now has a very objective view of health, when in fact, health is so subjective. Um, So just something else to mention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And this makes me think too, I, I did um, kinesiology in my undergrad. And one thing that one of our profs would always say is that it's better to be fit and fat than skinny and sedentary. So I don't know, just a relevant thought. Yeah, I mean, I, again, like I think the greater message is, of course, just promoting more um, inclusivity and more representation, because that's something certainly when I was growing up, I was not seeing. And I'm so thankful to start seeing that a little bit more now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm always just careful when, you know, describing one thing is better than the other, because I'm just very aware of how diet culture is very good at black and white thinking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, labeling people as skinny or fat or good or bad, or that kind of dichotomy, I think is just it's important to be aware of that language and how that, that might hurt some people as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So something to, another thing to consider. There's so many things to consider. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, for sure. But yeah, that that definitely makes sense. Um, So what would you say that our world needs to do to address body image problems and, and the issue of, of binge eating disorders? Oh man, that is a a loaded question. I'll start, I'll, I'll start a little bit with um, binge eating in particular, um, and then maybe move into body image a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with binge eating, one of the things we know, and again, I've been really informed by Dr. Linda Bacon, as well as Christy Harrison's work. One of the, you know, major risk factors to binge eating is restriction, and the body feeling hungry and the body, you know, fearing that they're not going to have food again 
which, you know, it makes sense that, of course, that's, you know, going to lead to having perhaps more food. Um, so I think, you know, just becoming aware that um, binge eating is going to have many different risk factors. There is certainly not a single one, but one that's going to be, um, or one that I've heard of as quite common is, is both physical restriction. So really, you know, restricting throughout the day and then perhaps engaging in binge eating at night or even more cognitive restriction and thinking about food as good and bad and counting calories and, um, you know, having forbidden foods. Often the forbidden foods are the ones that are consumed when binge eating. So I think just being aware that of the restrict binge cycle, I think is, is going to be an important first piece. Mm-hmm. And then also acknowledging again, that there are so many different risk factors for binge eating. Um, and so understanding, you know, what yours might be, could be, you know, a first, a first step. So it's not to say that the the restriction piece is the only um, risk factor. Um, it's just one that, you know, I've heard about quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then I think in terms of body image, I mean, there is, there is so much more we can do in terms of promoting even more inclusivity, promoting more representation on both social media and in our education. Um, We're getting better at it, certainly. I mean, I'm even thinking about when I was growing up and being at the grocery store and that, you know, magazine stand that you see as you're checking out. And those images were very um, unrepresentative of the people that I was seeing in my community. So we're getting better, but we're not there yet. Um, And so I think promoting more diverse bodies and appearances, um, however you can do that, whether that's on your own feed or, you know, really tailoring your newsfeed so that it has representation, um, I think is a really important step. And then also going, you know, into schools and, and, um, NEDIC, which is another resource that I'd love to talk about. It's the National Eating Disorder Information Center. They're a Canadian resource and they do a lot of outreach work in schools and teaching about media literacy and, you know, really critically examining diet culture and, um, understanding what biases there might be out there about bodies. Having that education young, I think is fantastic. Um, so, you know, those are just a couple things, but it's a, it's a loaded question and there's not a single answer for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, if someone is listening and has a loved one who is dealing with an eating disorder, what would you recommend that they do to help? Such a good question. I think, you know, the first part of that, I want to answer that if someone's listening and is themselves struggling to give yourself first a little self-compassion. And I say that, um, because I think mental health issues and eating disorders, body image, disordered eating, they can all feel so isolating. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first things I would say is that you're not alone. And Kristen uh, Neff, who's a psychologist that um, works with self-compassion and developed this really beautiful model of self-compassion, one of her components is um, a common sense of humanity. And, you know, essentially emphasizing that you're not alone in this experience and that there are so many other people who are going through 
what you're going through. So I think first acknowledging that common sense of humanity and giving yourself a little self-compassion, that that might be the first thing I would say. And then if you're wanting to help someone um, who's going through some of these things, I think a first great resources resource, sorry, would be NEDIC. So again, the National Eating Disorder Information Center, they have a page on tips and recommendations when talking to someone um, who's going through this. So I'm pulling a lot from their um, resource. One of the first things I think is to go in um, with curiosity and not assuming that, you know, you might know what the person is going through because something we've talked about is that everyone is going to experience this differently. Mm-hmm. So being curious, um, being non-judgmental, of course, and informed, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about eating disorders. So taking some time to not only acknowledge your own biases, maybe about weight and food and bodies, um, but taking some time to educate yourself on, you know, what are some of the misconceptions and what do I need to know about um, eating disorders? And then finally, of course, to be compassionate. And I think it can be so validating to acknowledge somebody's pain and that their experience is ex- can be extremely painful as well as talking about it can be really difficult. So just um, acknowledging that. So, you know, all of those keywords, compassion informed, those are all um, really taken from Netix page. And I would strongly encourage anyone who is wanting to talk to someone um, or, you know, they're concerned about them, that that would be a good resource to check out. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thank you. Of course. We'll have to take a look at that as well. Um, okay, cool. Is there anything? I feel like I've asked all the things that I, I wanted to ask. Is there anything that you wanted to add or, or talk about at all? Oh, no, I think we um, had a really great discussion. I just thank you again for having me. I think it is so important to have these conversations because something you and I have both said is we weren't having these conversations growing up. So I think it's great that um, we're having these conversations now. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, So I actually, I have two last questions that I have um, been finishing off every podcast episode with um, because it's called Learn With Well. So I basically feel that everyone should just continue learning throughout their whole lives. Um, So with that said, the first question is, what is something that you've been learning lately? Wow, uh, something I've been learning lately. Um, I think... Uh, two big things that I've been learning lately, and I imagine that everyone is learning these things. Um, The first is um, learning more about the Black Lives Matter movement and really reflecting on my own privileges, um, as well as trying to find ways to not only show support, but also be an ally um, and the best ways to be an ally. So that's certainly something that I'm um, learning more about. Mm -hmm. The second thing I'm learning more about is um, coping during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I'm someone who um, I'm quite extroverted. So I, I get a lot of pleasure from being around other people and seeing friends and family and being in gatherings. Um, so I've been learning a lot about how can, you know, engaging in self-care and doing fun things um, at home. So that's something that I've been working um, on since about March. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, great answer. I feel the exact same for both of those things that you just said. <laughs> awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last question is, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned in life so far? Such a good question. Um, the biggest lesson in life that I've learned so far is to 
make the best effort to approach as many situations as I can with curiosity rather than assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, taking time to reflect on, you know, what biases I might have about a situation and being open um, to learning because we never know what somebody is going through. We never, we can never assume what somebody is thinking or feeling. So really just approaching every situation I can with, with curiosity. Mm-hmm. Ooh, great answer. I feel like everyone could definitely practice that and, and learn that as well. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. This conversation has been great. Thank you so much for having me. 